The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer of his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a, a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And then she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. 
Whatever was done there, he was the one to do it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The word of God for the people of God. In 2005, a 27-year-old three-time Super Bowl winning quarterback was being interviewed on CBS on 60 Minutes to talk about all the success and all the achievements that this quarterback had gained at a very young age in his career. And as the interview progressed, at one point in the interview, this quarterback said these words, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? Steve Croft, who was the interviewer who was talking with Brady, kind of keeps going and then asks the follow-up question, so Brady, what else is there for you? And Brady's short response, this is Tom Brady, by the way, responds with these words. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. See, by pretty much any standard, our world standards in particular, Tom Brady is considered a successful person. He's won championships. He's good-looking. He's the GOAT, arguably the greatest quarterback in NFL history. Yet at the same time, when asked, is there more to do? Is there more to achieve? Is there more success that you would like to have? His simple response is only, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now, I don't mean to throw Brady under the bus, although I'm not the biggest fan of Tom Brady. I don't mean to throw Brady under the bus, but we live in this cultural climate that has a very particular definition of success, does it not? If you have the most Instagram followers, you're successful. If you've climbed the corporate ladder, you're successful. If you have the beautiful house in the most perfect neighborhood and everything seems to be going well for you, you're considered successful. And maybe success for you isn't, you know, climbing the corporate ladder or making the most money or anything along those lines, maybe financially, but maybe success is more just the temptation or the the desire to just have a, quote, life that's put together. You know, success might look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people, but generally speaking, there's a very particular idea or vision of what it means to be successful, especially here in America in our cultural moment. Again, don't don't misread me. Don't get me, you know, I don't want to misspeak here. What I'm not saying is that it's wrong to, you know, want a nice house. It's wrong to desire to do well at work or in school or anything along those lines. In fact, I would say the scriptures call us to pursue excellence, to pursue to have a desire to do well and to represent the Lord well in all our tasks, whether it's vocation or school and life in general. But if we allow those things, the pursuit of success, money, anything along those lines, to be what ultimately defines us, to be the end-all, be-all, to just plow through no matter what, where does that leave us? Where does that leave you and I? See, friends, the question that I want to help us consider this morning to think about is simply this. How does this story, Genesis 39, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, change how we think about success in our everyday life? How does this story, how does the gospel change how we think about success in our everyday life? So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 
39 as we continue on in our series through the life of Joseph. And as you're turning to Genesis 39, and perhaps you might have thought this as the story was being read and I've just been speaking a little bit, you might be wondering, isn't this story not about success but about temptation? Isn't Genesis 39 that moment in the Joseph story where we talk about, hey, pastor, give me some tips on how to battle temptation, battle desire, battle those things I'm struggling with? Isn't that what this sermon is supposed to be about? Well, there's going to be some of that in here, but what I want to show you as we dive into the text here is that there's actually a bigger theme at play. There's a bigger thing happening with this story, and it's simply this idea. Success is secondary. God's presence is primary. Success is secondary. God's presence is primary. I want to walk through this text showing you this in three particular ways. First, God's presence is primary in prosperity. Number two, God's presence is primary under pressure. And then number three, God's presence is primary even in prison or even in the pit. So as we dive in, I want to show you a few things about the text here. But number one, God's presence is primary even in prosperity or in prosperity. Let's look at verse one, chapter 39, as we dive in. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him before the Ishmaelites who had been brought down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house in the field. So he left all he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, a couple things I want to draw your attention to in the text we just read. First, notice multiple times, two in particular, the text tells us this very simple fact. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. Think about where Joseph's been so far. He's been betrayed. He's been abandoned. He's been left. He's in a foreign place, in a foreign land, away from his family. Years have gone by, and the text is telling you right out of the gate, the Lord is with Joseph. So no matter what happens in this chapter, we are reminded of the Lord's presence in Joseph's life. But second... Notice the text twice, verse 2 and verse 3, told us that Joseph is having success in the foreign land. That the Lord is with Joseph, and because of that, the Lord is helping Joseph to succeed in this new place that Joseph is in. The Lord's presence and Joseph's success are intimately tied together. Now, I want us to jump to the very end of this chapter, because I want to show you something here as we begin our time about how this chapter is structured. So if you can, look down with me at verse 21 of the chapter. Verse 21 says this, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. 
Do you notice some similarities between what we just read at the beginning of the chapter and what we just read right now at the end? Notice a few key phrases, a few key words that have reappeared here at the end of the chapter. Number one, again, we're told that the Lord is with Joseph both in the very beginning of this chapter and at the very end. That the Lord's presence seems to be kind of like this bookend holding this narrative unit, this chapter together, the Lord's presence. And the very last word of chapter 39 is succeed. Again, Joseph is finding success tied to the Lord's presence in this chapter. Now, why is this important? Why draw attention to this? This is actually a very important and very kind of common way the Hebrew writers of the scriptures would kind of organize and tell their stories. It's basically kind of telling you, the reader, here's what I want you to pay attention to. What's at the very beginning, if it matches at the very end, is often a way of kind of bracketing or bookending. Here's the main thrust, the main idea of the chapter or this section. And what we find, what we discover, is that even though Joseph's circumstances are going to change throughout this chapter, he's going to start in prosperity, he's going to go through a season of kind of, or a moment of temptation or pressure, and he's going to end back up in prison. All those circumstances are going to change, but what doesn't change? The Lord's presence with Joseph. And so as we look at this, notice, if we look at, towards back to the beginning of the chapter, we're reminded again, Joseph is successful. And multiple times throughout the first five or six verses, the word all appears. The Lord blessed all that Joseph had. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed. Over and over and over again, the narrator of this text wants you to know that even though Joseph is in a foreign land, the Lord is with Joseph, and Joseph is experiencing the blessing and the success that the Lord has for him. But there's an important nuance and there's an important detail I want to draw your attention to, and it's found in verse 3. In verse 3, we read these very simple words. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Now, if you're kind of one of those achiever, go-getters, ones that just kind of have a lot of drive and ambition and want to do well, I want you to, if you can, if you're you're able to, underline in your Bible those first three words of verse 3. His master saw. What did Joseph's master see in Joseph? Joseph's master saw how amazing and charismatic and how brilliant Joseph was. Joseph's master saw how, you know, how faithful Joseph was to be the first one in, the last one to leave in the office and just work really hard. Joseph's master saw how amazing his CV was. Obviously, none of those things are in the text. But what is in the text is verse 3 says, his master saw what? The Lord was with Joseph. That success for Joseph was not the end all be all. Success for Joseph was a window through which the Egyptian master saw through that and saw and recognized the presence of the living God with Joseph. Success is not an end, it's a window through which the master sees the Lord's presence in Joseph's life. And that, friends, I think is a key nuance and a key difference for how we might think about success in our day. Is the desire for success a bad thing? No. In fact, I think it's a God-given desire that we should all embrace and have it to a certain degree. But when it becomes an idol, then for sure it is bad. But Any success that we might have in this life is meant to be a window through which people see, not us, but see the presence of the Lord working in our lives. And notice, it's 
not all that often in the Joseph story that the personal name for the Lord, Yahweh, is used. And it is used here in this text. And this is signifying, I think, something very important, that his master did not see just like a generic version of someone who's generically religious or generically spiritual. The text doesn't say his master saw that Joseph was a religious person. The text does not say his master saw that Joseph was, quote-unquote, spiritual or had good morals. But the personal covenant name of the creator God of the universe, Yahweh, is used here in the text. That the, the master saw that Yahweh himself, the personal, sovereign, good creator God, is the one who is with Joseph. That Yahweh's presence is what distinguishes and marks and is changing Joseph in this story. That in times of prosperity, in a season of prosperity for Joseph, what the text is drawing our attention to is not necessarily his success. Yes, the text is mentioning that, but the key moment in the story so far is that his master sees what's different. The Lord's presence in his life. Now, as we keep going through the story, most of you, we, again, we just heard it read, recognize that what happens to Joseph isn't always going to be prosperity and glamour and ease. Notice how the text continues as we look at this second idea, that God's presence is primary under pressure. Under pressure. Verse 6 tells us that Joseph was a very handsome and good-looking dude. Right? He's kind of like Tom Brady in that sense. Verse 6, commentator Gordon Wenham, one of my favorite writers and scholars on the book of Genesis, has this to say about verse 6. Amidst Joseph's many blessings, he suffers from one endowment too many. Stunning beauty. and gets him in trouble. In verse 7, Potiphar's wife notices. In verse 7, Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and says, three words in English, lie with me. Actually, in the original text, it's actually more forceful, more inappropriate. It's just two commands back to back. Essentially, Potiphar's wife is saying, sex now. Just very upfront about it. And then in verse 8, how does Joseph respond? Joseph doesn't tap dance and play around and flirt with this situation. No, he, verse 8 says, he refused. He refused. Now, there's nothing incredibly special about the word refuse there in the text. It's not like a unique word in Hebrew or anything. It's actually a very common word throughout the Hebrew Bible. But I just want to draw your attention to that because it's a very simple observation, but a very important one. In the midst of pressure and temptation, Joseph's response is just simple refusal. I am not going to participate. I know who is with me. I know what I've been called to. I know what is right and what's wrong. These are very basic things. And so what Joseph does in verse 8 is that he refuses. Now, pause with me for a moment and think about when in the flow of the narrative this moment of pressure has arisen. The text has told us in the first opening lines of the prosperity, of the success, of the attention that Joseph has been given and is receiving and it's into this moment, a moment of potential ease and comfort and satisfaction and success, that it's in this moment the temptation comes. Now, temptation can come in all sorts of ways and all sorts of times, but there is something to be said about in moments of ease and comfort and success. 
how sometimes it can be very easy to forget and neglect the Lord's presence with us. To maybe have that not blatant, but just kind of under the surface assumption that, you know what, I'm the one who's kind of made the progress. I'm the one who's kind of made the success work. I'm the one who's kind of achieved these things. And slowly but surely, again, not blatantly, but subtly, we forget the Lord's presence with us. We forget the Lord's favor and blessing. The Lord is the one who's working in us and through us. But then, verse 9, though, gives us another key feature, another key detail in how Joseph is responding. Because what is the reason that Joseph says, I'm not going to do this thing? Well, he lifts a few reasons, but one of the main ones is simply this. Look at verse 9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What's happening in verse 9? It's the simple awareness of God's presence that is helping Joseph, ground Joseph, keep Joseph from falling into temptation and sin. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yes, he is, or if he would fall into this temptation, he would be sinning against Potiphar's wife. He, yes, would be sinning against Potiphar himself. But ultimately, Joseph here in verse 9 reminds us of what David would say later on in Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And it's this deep, strong conviction of the Lord's presence with Joseph that grounds him in this moment of pressure. That the Lord's presence is not just a theory or an idea or even a doctrine for Joseph, but it is reality that is shaping and transforming who Joseph is in a moment, a real moment of pressure. And friends, this is what I think the scriptures are inviting all of us into, is to not just see the Lord's presence as something ethereal or abstract or something we believe and agree with and profess together, but something that we know and experience and rely on in our moments that we face with pressure. That the God who loves us and made us and is for us is with us no matter what. And the presence of God is not to bring shame upon us or guilt upon us in the sense of just us wallowing back in our own self-pity. But no, the presence of God is meant to fuel us and strengthen us and bring us into deeper dependence and love and adoration for the things of him so that we might, like in verse 8, refuse those things that might snare us and keep us away from God's presence. Friends, the enemy wants us to not enjoy the gift of God's presence. But the gift of God's presence, the more we understand who he is, the fact that he is with us, that he is for us, our affections, our desires begin to grow for him, and the things of this world become, by God's grace, by God's power, by God's spirit, things that are easier for us to refuse. To not dabble in, but to refuse. But as the story continues, notice in verse 10, just because Joseph refused in verse 8 doesn't mean the temptation is just going to automatically go away. The text reminds us and tells us that Potiphar's wife, verse 10, day after day, or day by day, your translation might say, she kept coming. She kept advancing herself or attempting to advance herself on Joseph. And it's this kind of unique feature of the text where we've been reminded so far of God's presence with Joseph, God's continual presence with him, but we're also reminded of the presence of something else in Joseph's life. 
This temptation that keeps coming to him day after day after day. We're not exactly told how long this period is, but it kind of gives us a window into what Joseph was facing, is that yes, the Lord's presence was continually with him, but also this temptation was as well. And it's into these moments, we must realize, friends, that it continues not just a momentary decision, yes, I want to rely on God's presence, but a daily abiding, to borrow the language from Jesus, of the presence of God in our lives. And I actually just want to pause right here for a moment and kind of talk and dive a little bit deeper into this idea of resisting temptation or resisting sin. How might we, as followers of Jesus in our cultural moment right now, relying on the Lord's presence, resist temptation? There's three kind of quick, simple points, and we'll get back to the Joseph story. But I feel like this would be helpful to, to share and work through together. Number one, as we think about relying on God's presence in the midst of temptation, we must deal with temptation, number one, realistically. All I mean by this is just very simple. Don't think you can just do this on your own. Don't think you have the strength and the wisdom and the ability to just fight all your temptations by yourself. This is why community matters. This is why, just like as Dusty was saying a moment ago, like being together in fellowship with other people to strengthen us, to help us, matters so much. Because realistically, on our own, isolated, it's so much easier to fall into temptation. So just be, reali be realistic about the struggle of the reality of sin and of temptation that we face. Number two, as we seek to overcome or battle temptation, we must battle temptation rely, ruthlessly, sorry, ruthlessly. And what I mean by this is just like how Joseph flees in this story, just like how Joseph refuses in verse 8, ruthlessly eliminating sin and temptation from our lives. John Owen, famous Puritan writer, helps us here when he says very simply, too many people play with sin instead of putting it to death. Or in a later spot, John Owen would famously say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. All John Owen is doing in that moment is just echoing the words of Jesus from his famous teaching where Jesus would say, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. And it's this vivid imagery, this vivid metaphor that Jesus uses, this kind of in your front, in your face kind of language that John Owen uses to get to this point of in order to combat sin, rely on God's presence, there is a ruthlessness, in the best sense of that term, that needs to take place. But last but not least, I think this might be the most important one, it's kind of what we're getting at this morning, is that to overcome temptation, to battle sin, we must do so reliantly. Reliantly. And all I mean by, by this idea is that we are relying on the presence and power of God in our own struggles and our own temptations and sins. Not relying on our own strength, not relying on our own wisdom or ingenuity, but remembering what the words of Scripture have to say about this. In particular, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 reminds you and I that we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. That Jesus, our great high priest, is near and is present 
and knows what it's like to be tempted, and the good news is, yet without sin. And may we, friends, rely on the presence of God in our lives, relying on his presence, that we might become the kinds of people who more and more, although imperfectly, rely on the Spirit's presence and power that we might overcome and battle temptation in our lives. See, friends, what often happens, though, in our cultural moment in particular, is that sometimes when we sin, when you sin, or we know someone who sins or does something kind of dumb, often the line that gets kind of floated around is something like this. Well, they're just human. Have you ever heard that before? Oh, they're just being human, right? And while I get the sentiment, I get kind of the reasoning behind why someone might say that, I want to kind of gently push back on that because I think that's actually theologically not all that correct. Here's why. See, yes, we live in a post-Genesis 3 world where we're broken, we're sinful, and yes, we have our shortcomings for sure. But that is not the full picture of what it means to be human. We were created, Genesis 1 and 2, in his image, designed not to sin, and we are headed on a trajectory one day to be fully perfected and sanctified into the image of Christ where there will be no more sin in our lives. That's the goal. That's the destiny we're headed toward. And so in the moments where we, in our own flesh, in our own struggles, sin and go away from what God has for us, it's in those moments we're actually falling into something that is less than human. Sin is subhuman. Sin is not part of what it ultimately means to be human. With an end in view of where this whole thing is going for followers of Jesus, we're headed toward a destiny where there will be no more sin, pain, suffering, and death. So with the end in view, sin is actually dehumanizing. Sin actually takes away from our humanity based on God's design and God's destiny for us. Actually, to be truly human is to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who knows what it's like to be tempted, yet without sin. And so, friends, this morning, I don't know necessarily where you're at in your story or your discipleship to Jesus, but the encouragement that I think a passage like this is offering in Hebrews 4 and others in the New Testament is that we have a great high priest who knows what it's like who shows us what it's like to be truly human, but doesn't just merely give us an example, but gives us his power and his spirit and his presence to walk through this life by the grace of God, overcoming temptation and sin. And that is what it actually means to be truly human. So, as we think about this a little bit more, as we kind of keep going on with the Joseph story, Joseph, he's going to do the right thing. We want to do the right thing. Most of us, I would, I would venture to say, and we're still getting to know each other, we all want to do the right thing. Amen? Does that always lead to just happiness and success and things going well for us? May the Joseph story be an invitation to see, even though you might obey the Lord, things might not actually go the way you want them to, right? Joseph's going to do the right thing. Joseph's going to resist temptation. Yet Joseph is essentially going to get framed for committing something he did not commit. The language that Potiphar's wife is just, in some ways, it's actually very demeaning. It's very demoralizing. It's very dehumanizing to who Joseph is. This Hebrew that you brought along, he's the one who's causing all this mess. And Joseph's master finds out about it. There's some hints in the text that he might not fully believe his own wife. 
but he has no other choice but to throw Joseph in prison. But I want us to see as we kind of land this a little bit here, is that even though this story started off with Joseph in prosperity and being successful, the Lord was with them there. But we're also going to see in these last few verses, again, being reminded of the Lord's presence, even when Joseph is in prison. So let's take a look, if you can, down at the end of the chapter, verse 20 and following. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. There's our key word again, succeed. The last word of this chapter. But also, notice again, the Lord's presence is what's marking Joseph in this moment. The text of this story is telling you and I, is reminding you and I, that even though the circumstances and the situations of Joseph's life have changed in a short amount of time, what has not changed? The Lord's presence with Joseph. And even still, the text is going out of its way to tell you again that Joseph is experiencing success even when he is in the pit, even when he is in prison, which honestly goes against everything our culture has to say about what success is, does it not? That our culture tells us success is only when things are going your way, when you're achieving the dreams you want to achieve, when you're doing what you want to do and having success in those things, then and only then are you having success. But this story right here is reminding you and I that you know what? What actually defines success is not your achievements, your accomplishments, or even kind of the presentation of you having a put-together life. Rather, what defines success is the Lord's presence with you. The God who doesn't abandon you, the God who is for you, and the God for whom nothing can separate you from his love. But friends, if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, when things don't go my way, it's in those moments when circumstances don't align with my vision of what I want to do or achieve or whatever, it's very easy in those moments for myself in particular to go, God, where are you? You're not, you're not there with me. It's easy for me, maybe you're different, but it's easy for me to go, oh, you know, when things are going my way, when, you know, all the cards on the table are all lining up, yes, the Lord is with me. Oh, amen, for sure. But the, and especially when I'm trying to do the right thing and then it doesn't actually work out the way I want to, God, where are you in that moment? But what is this story reminding us of? Situations do not determine success. Circumstances change all of the time, but what does not change is the Lord's presence with you and with I. And friends, I know even as we're still kind of here this morning together, getting to know each other and, and, and building friendship and community, that there's so many stories in this room of seasons and moments of painful disappointment. Of moments in your story and in my story where you want to do the right thing, you do do the right thing, 
but then things don't work out the way you want them to. And there's that moment that we all face, sometimes more often than we want to face, where we are faced with that question, God, where are you? I was trying to be faithful. I want to do the right thing. But what we're seeing here in this story, what we're seeing here in this text is that the presence of God is not something that just is fleeting or changes, but it's something that is constant and remains again and again and again in the life of Joseph. And again, I know for many of us in this room, oftentimes what happens in these kinds of moments is that we're tempted towards, I think, one of two things in particular. Where we try to do the success thing, where we try to do the right thing and it doesn't work out, we're often in these moments of seasons of disappointment Seasons where life isn't going the way we want it to go, we're often faced with these two temptations. And these are actually something that I kind of re recently rediscovered through Dr. Alan Noble. So for those of you who don't know, we sell his book out there in the lobby. He's going to be here on June 25th, Dr. Noble is. So if you can, just by tangent here, mark that date on your calendar, June 25th. You're going to want to be here for that as he presents here with us. But two temptations that in seasons of disappointment we often face. Number one, the temptation of affirmation, which is simply this. You know what? I want to be like the Tom Brady's of the world. I want to have all those nice things. I want to achieve and climb the corporate ladder, do all these things. I'm just going to affirm everything our culture tells us about what success is. I'm just going to buy hook, line, and sinker what the narrative is that our culture gives us for success and affirm it and then seek to do all that I can in my own strength, in my own power, and just go for it. The temptation toward affirmation. But second, maybe on the flip side of that, Dr. Noble would say there's the temptation toward resignation, where it's like, you know what? I'm never going to be like Tom Brady. In fact, I kind of despise people like Tom Brady, not because, you know, he beat my football team, but just because I don't like people like that. I don't like people who want to be successful. I don't want to be that kind of person that wants to achieve stuff. And so I'm just going to resign myself to my own little world and it kind of becomes a more internally sort of focused way of being. But friends, both of these temptations, if you think about it, place the self at the center. Make the self the one that is the ever-present one. In the first instance, it's I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the one to achieve. The second one is, you know what? I'm just going to keep to myself, resign to whatever, you know, life has for me. But it's still going to be about me. But friends, the good news of the gospel comes in and says to both of those and to wherever you might be on that spectrum, you know what? God's presence is with you and is for you and gives you the power and the confidence to, yes, pursue things with excellence, to do things to the glory of God, not in a way that becomes an idol, but recognizing what your true worth is found is not in what you achieve or what you do, but like Joseph, because the Lord's presence, people see through that and see God at work in your life. And to the person who just wants to resign and not really care about life or do anything, you know, just want to do their own thing by themselves, the gospel comes and says no and gives you confidence to move forward in faith, saying, you know what? The Lord has a purpose and a plan for my life. That Christ has defeated the power of sin and death, that Christ is abiding with me, and that I can, in humble confidence, move forward with what he has for me. You know, and as we kind of close our time together, one last question I want to have for us is simply this. How can you and I know that God is with us? 
How can you and I be confident and sure that just like the Lord was with Joseph in all the fluctuating circumstances we've read about, how can we know and be certain that the one who loved us, loves us and has made us in his image is for us and is with us? I mean, because isn't Joseph just like some superhero, some moral example that we're to follow? Isn't this story about how to, you know, face temptation with your own strength? No, no, there's part of that to a certain degree, but what this text is pointing us forward to is the recognition and the reality that because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, his incarnation, his life, his death and resurrection, where he has defeated sin and the power and death itself, that because of who Christ is, he has ascended on high, and before he ascended, he said this to his followers, it is actually better that I leave. Why? Because I'm going to give you my spirit. It's better that I go so that you might have the power in the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life as his followers. And friends, this is the good news of the gospel that Christ has defeated sin and death, amen and for sure, but he has also given us the gift of his spirit to be with us and for us. And because of that, we can say with Paul, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We can recognize and understand that do you not know, church, Paul would say, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that the spirit of the living God dwells within you. Or another place, Paul would say, you know what? Do you not know that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives and resides in you, church? And that because of who Christ is, because of the good news of the gospel, Christ has not abandoned us. He has drawn near to us and has given us not just a mere example to follow, but the power and his personal presence to enable us to live lives where we truly become the kinds of people where success is secondary. And his presence is primary in our lives, in prosperity, under pressure, and even in the proverbial pit or dungeon that we might face today. So friends, as we meditate and dwell and respond and worship and coming to the table, may we be reminded again and again that our Lord and Savior, through the gift of his Spirit, is with you and with us. And friends, may that be the defining thing in your life and in my life. May God give us the grace and the strength and the perseverance to be the kinds of people, by his Spirit, that when people see us, they see through us to the Lord himself. Father, we're grateful for the gift of your word. We're grateful for the chance and the privilege to be together this morning. So God, as we are gathered here together, we know that you're with us. We know that you're for us. But God, I know for so many in this room, and at times for myself, it can be difficult to remember and recognize your presence in our lives. So God, no matter what season of life no matter where we are in our stories, in our discipleship to you, God, may you, by your grace, draw near to each person in this room. In a very personal and personable and tangible way, God, draw near. Comfort us with your presence. Draw us nearer to you, that we might enjoy you and live lives that seek to glorify you. We love you only because you first loved us, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.